Today on the Show Me Institute podcast, Dr. Susan Pendergrass is joined by Dr. Michael McShane. Dr. McShane is the Director of National Research at EdChoice and a Senior Fellow of Education Policy at the Show Me Institute. They discuss the impact of the coronavirus pandemic on education across the country, the challenges of homeschooling, and what the future of learning in America looks like. For more Show Me Institute podcasts, visit SoundCloud at soundcloud slash Institute and subscribe on Apple Podcast. Here's Dr. Susan Pendergrass and Dr. Michael McShane. So who would have ever thought that there'd be 50 million homeschooled and unschooled kids in one day? I know, absolutely. Can you believe it? It's it's so funny because so much of the work that I do talking to homeschoolers or people who might be interested in homeschool or homeschooling, it's like the opposite. It's people who want to homeschool, but because of obstacles or because of finances or because of logistics, they can't do it. And now it's the opposite. We have so many people who want to do it or who don't want to do it, but are doing it. Yeah. And unschooling is a lot too. Like, I don't think people were very familiar with that, but a lot of districts are just like, you know, we can't serve every kid. So we're not going to serve any kid. And we're going to give parents, St. Louis Public Schools has got like a resources page. And it's like, there are great science activities you can do. I mean, they're basically doing nothing for parents. They're not doing any synchronous or asynchronous learning. They're just like, hey, here's some cool websites. You should check them out. Yeah, it seems like there's kind of a, a spread across the country where we have some districts that are have at least enough of a history or or a process in place where they could make this transition. You have another group of districts that's clearly just got blindsided by this, but they're scrambling and trying to do something. And we may see over the course of the next week, two weeks, three weeks, them actually be able to stand up something. And then there's this other group of districts that's just like, yeah, not happening. And then they can, yes, use use the fig leaf of equity or use the fig leaf of serving students with special needs as a kind of excuse to say, well, we don't really have to do anything. So so it's kind of, sort of interesting across seeing these different groups and how they're responding to it. Yeah. So, you know, our colleagues at University of Washington are, are accumulating this database of district plans. I'm sure you've seen that. It's like a Google Doc and it's growing. Kansas City and St. Louis are in there. Kansas City is in there as like we might mail some assignments to students in the mail, the U.S. mail. And other districts are in there like we're ready to go. We're up and learning. The kids, it's like seamless. We've got it all in place. And I think when you read through those, you can really see the difference, which is amazing because, the you know, every day that goes by, more districts and states are canceling school to the end of the year. I think that's an entire possibility. And other, you know, places in Missouri are still thinking extended spring break. I don't know that this is going to be an extended spring break. No, I mean, I, I totally get why in some cases they're trying to I, I get. Look, I think personally, some of these states were a bit hasty in saying, all right, we're done for the rest of the school year. Like this isn't a decision that 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 had to be made this week. Right. Like you could say we're taking a month off. And then we're going to reevaluate in a month. Now, I get Kansas makes a little bit of sense because their their year ends earlier than a lot of other states do. So saying, you know, best case scenario, we're going to come back for three weeks or something. I get where they say we're just going to pull the plug. But if you look over in Virginia, I mean, Virginia goes for a very long time. Um, so so them pulling the plug on that's kind of. Uh, definitely interesting. So, so yeah, I don't, I don't know what they're going to do. I think there's this happy medium where you have 
the school districts are saying, oh, it's like extended spring break. It's going to be another week or something. And then you have other school districts that are just like, shut it down. And who, knew, who knows what's even going to happen in September? It seems to me the more prudent thing is to sort of say, okay, we're going to shut down for a month. And then, you know, three weeks from now, we'll reevaluate. And then we'll we'll take it from there. That's just got to be so anxiety producing as a parent. I mean, my kids are grown and yours is not yet in school that I'm aware of. But um, it's got to be so anxiety producing because even parents I've spoken to said like their third grade, third graders teachers reached out and done a bunch of stuff. The fifth graders teacher haven't heard a word, you know, so teachers, you know, we, we now know like how unprepared we obviously are for this in some places. Missouri's absolutely one of those places where teachers aren't prepared to do this virtually. Parents aren't prepared to do what they're to, what they're being expected to do. And so you kind of, in my opinion, there should have been a structure in place for, for to say, don't worry, teachers, we got your back. We're going to help you through this and we're going to show you how to get this done. And I think some places doing that. And don't worry, parents, you know, you don't have to become a homeschooling parent overnight. You don't have to learn eighth grade math. I know a lot of parents are like I can't do eighth grade math. <laughs> you know, don't worry. We got you. We have a system in place. I think Florida is doing that pretty well. Florida is giving, I know, $200 stipends to the first 10,000 teachers who passed through their virtual training program, which is great. Um, they already have a requirement, a high school graduation requirement that you have to take at least one class online just to get students used to it. So some states are way more prepared. I feel like we're like they're at the 50 yard line. We're back at the 10 in Missouri. I think that's right. And I think that it's also important, you know, I, so I do research on homeschooling um, and I've been in conversations with folks. I'm trying to write stuff now to highlight schools that are meeting kids needs like that are doing solving problems creating solutions that are right now and it's been fascinating both sort of the homeschoolers that I've talked to in the past and the school leaders that I'm talking to now that we don't have to set like a crazy high bar so the thought that the Kansas City school district or the St. Louis school district or any any other school districts in Missouri would be able to transition to synchronous learning on Zoom conference call or whatever in a day is crazy. Like, obviously, we wouldn't be able to do that. But setting a bar to say, hey, look, your child's teacher will check in with you every other day or something. Just we'll have a half hour call. Check in. How are things going? That that a school's librarian or that some administrator, someone couldn't send out resources. Hey, here are the 10 most popular books that children at your age group read. Here's ways to access that. Here are logins for various resources that are out there. Hey, here's, um, you know, here's 15 YouTube videos that, that you can watch. Here are links to. So just pushing out resources to families and say, look, we're not going to be able to do some big formal structure, but here are things that you can do to keep your kids occupied and to not make this be a kind of hard stop. I mean, that stuff is out there and it doesn't seem to me like that is a terribly large lift for schools to be pushing that stuff out to, to parents. I mean, those of us who are newly, like uh, immediately working remotely, our whole, whole organization, the obvious things are communication, like communicate a lot, get used to Zoom video, just get over being on video, right? Um, and, and just make sure that you maintain some level of contact that's similar to what you had before. And I think that's absolutely true for schools. I know some schools are calling kids every day. The teachers are calling their, their students every day, which is probably an important part of that kid's day. So just for maintaining communication. 
And I think some of the takeaways too are like, number one, keep the kids safe and fed. And I think most places are really stepping up on distributing meals and doing what they can for safety. And a couple hours a day, you can't expect a kid's going to sit down and do six hours of schoolwork at home every day who's never been doing that. I think an hour or two a day is is perfect. I totally agree with you. And this is the great thing. So when you talk to people who homeschool, like so who do this because it is their choice, and you ask them, like, how many hours a day do you actually spend? They don't do eight to three, right? Like on one level, because schools bake in a lot. There is a lot of wasted time in schools. And I'm, I'm a former high school teacher. There's just a lot of wasted time in school days, right? Because kids have to move from classroom to classroom. You got to start the class by like taking attendance and settling people down. You got to get them kind of going. And then you've got like this kind of sweet spot of 20 or 30 minutes where you're really humming, going through things. And then like towards the end, people start to, right? Like this is just the natural rhythms of schooling. And you have lunch and you got assembly, whatever. You got all of this kind of time that when you are teaching kids at home, you don't have to do. And you don't have to do it all at the same time. You can do 45 minutes in the morning and then take a break and do two hours in the afternoon, right? Like the main reason and what I've tried to impress upon people, like the research that we have on homeschoolers and research that that I've done and lots of people smarter than me have done is that most people homeschool not because they are trying to like juice the academic performance of their kids. It's not so that they can say like, oh, well, you know, the traditional school goes eight to three and I want my kids to go eight to five. Most homeschoolers homeschool because they want their child's education to fit more naturally in the rhythms of their family. You know, and this is what's what's fascinating. One of the best books, if people want to know more about homeschooling, it came out, I think, almost 20 years ago. There's a book called Kingdom of Children by Mitchell Stevens, who's a sociologist who spent a bunch of time with homeschooling families. And so you really get this kind of first person. And it's not like a dry statistical book. It's he actually spent time with families to understand what they were going through. And what he found was families from across the political spectrum, right? So I think there's a conception that this is only conservatives or only conservative Christians that, that participate in homeschooling. And that really doesn't match the data that we have or the experience that people have. But the things that these families shared in common was a belief that schools are not the most nurturing places for students and that family is important and that they want to keep their family structures intact and that schools and outside culture, but schools as part of the general culture, pull children away from their families. So for me, you know, if people, I think if people internalize that more and said, no, like, most homeschoolers homeschool because they want to have a strong family unit and pass down values and morals and, and all of those sorts of things. Maybe it would take some of the pressure off our accidental homeschoolers right now. Sure. I homeschooled one year. I had three kids. I homeschooled my youngest one for fourth grade. And that was no political or religious or any reason. The reason I did it was um, because in third grade, he's pretty bright. He spent seven or eight hours a day at school and he came home and had like three hours of homework. That didn't work for my family. The other two kids could go outside and he had a teacher who just really was into giving homework. And um, it was not necessary. I ended up writing a note saying, by the way, he won't be doing homework for the rest. Like, we're not going to do this homework thing. It's not working for me, as you said, as my family. So the next year I homeschooled him. He used a virtual program and it was maybe two to three hours a day. And 
sometimes he'd get really into something. Like he did a whole history thing that he could just keep going as many hours as he wanted. And sometimes we do five spelling tests in a day. But I just like the flexibility that when the school day was over, it was over. We weren't doing a bunch of homework. And he ended up going back in fifth grade. But, you know, it was a good experience for me. It did give me that perspective, which is how much they actually do during the day. However, I also think there's no sense in prognosticating much at this point. But I also think when this starts to end, a lot of people are going to realize how grateful they are that these buildings house their children for eight hours a day. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I'd be like, wow, I didn't realize what a great deal that was. Yeah, they're not learning a lot every day, but they're over there. For sure. I'm I'm expecting, and, and you're right, prognosticating. I, we could have done this, had we done this podcast about some other topic like a month ago, we would have never thought that we would be here where we are right now. My guess is that there's going to be a kind of bimodal distribution, right? So you're going to have a hump of families that experience this and actually really like it and say, oh, wow, like this is different and this is cool. And then there's going to be a hump of families that say, oh, my God, I could never do this. Thank you so much for taking my children from eight to three every day. Now, yes. the interesting me from like a researcher's perspective is how big will each of those humps be? Right. Like, is it going to be a lot in one, a lot in the other? And I think there's actually kind of interesting survey work that we should do in the next you know, year or two as people reflect back on this. But but, yeah, I imagine some some folks are going to dig it and a lot of folks are not going to dig it. And it's and it'll be really interesting to see, like, so who who fits into each of those groups and why do they fit into each of those groups? And, and I think that that can kind of actually inform us as we go forward. We can actually know more about you know, the idea of school choice in general and who chooses and why they choose and what type of options might be better available to serve their kids. I also think that um, the public school the public school system as a whole is going to, I hope, going to uh, have to do some self-reflection because they oftentimes don't trust parents as much as they should, and now they have no choice. And so in Missouri, you know, parents were having to sue to get access to virtual education that they have a legal right to, but school districts were still saying, oh, it's not in the best interest of your child. They're really better off here in this building than learning virtually. Well, that's out the door, I assume, at this point. And um, also, Missouri was beginning to develop the capacity for districts to create alternative methods of instruction for, I assume, for rural districts and other districts that are like, look, we got to start looking into virtual more because uh, of a number of reasons. And so for 2021, districts were going to be able to submit alternative uh, methods of instruction plans or AMI plans. And the district, I'm sorry, the Department of Education was going to review them, possibly approve them. They had to meet all these guidelines also out the door. Right. So all of that regulation, all of that, you know, resistance, like all of that, you know, um, uh, that resistance to virtual learning uh, really doesn't mean a lot today because now they have to acknowledge that they put all of this into parents' hands and they have to trust that they'll do the best they can. I wonder what that will be like as we come out of this. For sure. I mean, it'll be, yeah, it'll be wild to see because you're right. I mean, like this is sort of, it's, it's sort of right now we're sort of saying the quiet part out loud, which is this idea that parents are insanely influential in the success of their children, right? Like that, whether we like it or not, or whether we want that to be true or not, or whether we like, that's just is what it is. And so episodes like this put that in very stark relief where we say like, oh, wow, like they have to be with their parents all day, every day. But, you know, 
schools are only in session 180 days a year for like seven hours a day. There's a whole lot that goes on outside 20% of 20% of a kid's life is in the school building. 80% somewhere else. Exactly. So, so in some ways, I hope that this can make us smarter about how we talk about these things um, in the sense that like parents play this incredibly influential role and this thought you can kind of like parent quote unquote parent proof education or whatever people think that they can do is just nuts. Like you just can't do that. So the, what you have to do is work with parents and you have to, what was that thing in like the Iraq where you got to go to go to war with the army you've got, not the army you want. You've got to work with the parents that you have, not the ones that, that you want. So you've got to work with parents. You've got to support them. You've got to push resources out to them. You have to listen to them when they talk to you and not sort of push them away and say, no, we're the professionals and you're the parents. So I hope that I'm like the eternal optimist, which is difficult in a pandemic, but, um, you know, I am the optimist who thinks that maybe in some of these districts, and it won't happen in all of them, better communication is actually happening now between parents and schools. And, and both of these sides are seeing themselves as on the same team because it's this, this external force is fighting against all of us right now. I think back to my time. So I used to be, when I said I used to be a high school teacher, but I also, also used to be a baseball coach. And I taught some of the same kids that I coached. And it was crazy how they behaved completely differently. I'm the same guy. I'm the same authority figure. But when the other school school bus pulled up and suddenly we're all fighting against them, or not fighting, but playing baseball against them, amazingly, they really wanted to hear like what the strategy was or like how they should swing the bat better. So maybe, right, maybe um, th this external foe will actually yeah. help improve the communication that we have and realize that like actually, even when a pandemic isn't happening, um, there is this external foe of like ignorance. <laughs> and that's what we're all trying to fight against. So if we work together more, communicate more, lean on each other more, we can actually be more successful. But again, I, I'm so. the optimist. I mean, it's, most kids are, I don't know, I don't have a, I don't have any defense of using the word most. Many kids are setting up online accounts now. They're having to communicate digitally. Um, I know some, a lot of states already had something in place called Classroom Wallet, which is an app where they can fund kids. Uh, state states that have like school choice programs, they can put money into Classroom Wallet. The parents can spend it only on approved vendors. If more states were taking advantage of that now, they could put money directly into the hands of low-income kids for the, them to purchase technology. So that's I'm hearing a lot like it's not fair that a lot of kids don't have access to technology. Um, but we're going to have to be I assume that creative ideas are being generated right now that I hope that we there's some sort of a general debrief and we keep the good ones. That's what I'm afraid of is like if there's backlash against the unpleasant parts of this experience that they're like, oh, God, let's go back to exactly the way we did it before that all happened. I really hope that we keep the good ideas that come out of this. For sure. And I think, you know, it's interesting. I was talking to a school leader yesterday who is working to transfer to a kind of full full time online model and they they had a strong kind of technology program ahead of time but i was fascinated to even listen to her discussions of like what they're trying to do even for very young kids because it's like you know the the transitioning to a, like a full-time online learning for like a first grader i could imagine would be very very challenging to do we're trying especially trying to do anything sort of synchronous but you know what she brought up which i thought was really interesting was it was like look what we're trying to do is like first thing in the morning get all the kids in like a zoom conference just to talk to each other 
to check in on each other, to hear that each other are doing well, to talk about sort of how they're occupying their time. This was happened to be a religious school, so they prayed, they sang some songs, and then sort of they pushed out, here are some activities to do throughout the day that people can do with their families. And so that sort of stuff. So it's also helpful, I think, at this time, one of these lessons like you were talking about that we can learn is that schools are little communities and children make friends there and they care about their friends. And these are wonderful things that we should be teaching children. And so schools, if nothing else, I think maybe there's so much pressure now to say like, oh, academic content. How are we getting academic content out there? How are we getting classwork out there? How are we doing... When some say, like, no, like, how are you creating maybe even just a half an hour a day for students to build community with one another, to see if everybody else is okay? It's a scary time for kids, especially little kids, to, like, try and process all of this. So just doing that, like, again, it's not like this huge lift that we, that it has to be full-time synchronous. Oh, 10, 10, 15, we're going to science class now. But thinking through building those structures that I would hope and and I would hope that like a teacher should be able to manage that. Like I get saying, hey, it's Monday, you're back from spring break. You now need to transfer to a completely online um, instructional delivery. Like that's crazy to expect that to happen. But to say, hey, look, we want you to organize a half an hour community building session every day and then push out activities, right? Like that to me, while... You know, again, not making the perfect the enemy of the good here. Like, that would be awesome. Like, that would be an amazing thing that I would bet that most schools, not all schools are going to be able to do this, but a lot, a lot, a lot of schools should be able to pull that off. Yeah, and I guess there's some limitations for kids who don't have broadband, but you can work around that too, even phone calls. I just think personal contact is important. Uh, One last thing, what's your take on no standardized assessments this year? fine with it, to be honest with you. Uh, I think that for no other reason than for schools that are going to be coming back, every minute that they have, they should be spending on trying to make up for lost time, instruction, all of that sort of stuff. I think the numbers would have been garbage anyway, right? Like, um, because, of, you know, the how the testing windows are and everything. So it's fine with me. I, I don't, it's not, I, I wouldn't have trusted the numbers if I got them. Um, so maybe look personally, it could be really interesting. And this is more from a researcher's perspective and others when kids go back in the fall to take some sort of assessment, I think would be, would be if nothing else, interesting again, though, I always try to think schools have a limited amount of time. They just have a limited amount of time and time you spend testing is less time you spend on instruction. And in times where we have to prioritize instruction, testing becomes more of a nice to have than a need to have. So in an ideal world, you know, kids would come back like a week earlier than we thought and we'd give them some assessment to see what the impact of this event was. Um, But if I'm a school leader and I only have, you know, 180 days or whatever, that's just lower on my list. I don't know. What do you think? I mean, um, it's unfortunate that in Missouri, we've only, we finally got two consecutive years of test scores because we have switched the test so many times. So now we're going to have those two. We have to wait another, you know, a couple of years to have another one, whether those will be um, comparable or not. I don't know. I mean, there's going to be so many things to research after this is over. I think it's really fascinating because I've always said, and lots of people have always said, things happen so slowly in education. 
you know, like reform just happens very slowly and impact from reform is minuscule. You get like really small standard deviations and that's a big deal to people. Right. So um, standard deviations have changed. And so all of a sudden I, I can't even imagine a bigger disruption. So I think the before and after on this is going to be really interesting. Yeah. Wild. Absolutely wild. And, you know, if you had told me there'd be no sports and no um, school buildings operating, I just... I wouldn't have believed you. No, of course not. It, Wait, as much as I respect you, I wouldn't have believed you. Even so. as it started. No, but that was a crazy thing. Like, even as it started, it was like, oh, maybe in Seattle or maybe in somewhere else. Yeah. But suddenly it's like, oh, no, like 10 days from this moment right now, everything will be shut down. Just just mind-blowing. Would not have believed it. But here we are. So I think, I don't know, maybe there'll be a positive out of that where education has to become the more, more flexible. Like, we've been doing things the same way for, like, about – at least a hundred years. So a major disruption in this type of um, environment is, is gonna be very interesting to see how it goes. Well, stay safe. Yeah, you too. Take care. Um, and let's do a follow-up podcast when everything is back to normal. For sure. Will do. Sounds great. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks a lot. Thank you for listening to the Show Me Institute podcast. Find more at showmeinstitute.org.